So uh, President Ahmadinejad uh, called up uh, Prime Minister Harper on the phone, and he said, uh, yeah, Prime Minister Harper, I, I had an interesting dream about your country uh, last night. I had a dream about Canada. And, uh, and um, you, you can decide as I tell this story whether it's true or not, okay? Just, just, just give you that little disclaimer here. And, uh, and, Prime, and Prime Minister Harper said, oh, really? Well, uh, what, what happened in the dream? And he said, well, I, I dreamt that I was soaring across your country and on every flagpole and, um, and, and uh, um, banners in front of houses and public buildings. Uh, it, it had, uh, it, they had banners and flags and on all of them it said, Allah is God and He is great. And uh, Prime Minister Harper paused for a moment and then he said, I actually uh, had an, a dream about Iran last night, also an interesting dream. Um, and there was this dead silence for a second, and then President Ahmadinejad said, well, uh, what, what, what did you dream? And he said, well, I, I too dreamt that uh, I was soaring across your country, and I could see banners in front of all the government buildings and public locations and uh, flags flying, and uh, there was writing on them. And... Uh, there was this long pause, and then finally Ahmadinejad broke the silence, and he said, well, what, 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 what did the writing say? What, what was on them? And Prime Minister Harper said, I don't know. I can't read Hebrew. <laughs> I read that this last week, and I thought, I, I appreciated that. Actually, um, with what we were talking last week about how, you, how, you know, when, uh, when we read in John that whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, that's where it's at. We were talking about what that actually means. To believe that Yeshua is the Messiah, meaning he's the king, he is the coming king, not only of Israel, but he will be a global ruler. Um, you know, that joke might actually not be too far from the truth. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, why, uh, that's why we're learning Hebrew here. We're just getting ready, hey? Yeah. Yeah. Why, don't we, uh, why don't we look at uh, Romans first, uh, Romans chapters 1 to 3. There are a couple of things I, I wanted to hit here. Um, some of them relate on a broader body of Messiah level. Some of them are more for uh, us as a Messianic Jewish community. Some of, us, some of them are for personal discipleship. Hmm. Well, let's, let's start with maybe a, a, personal, a, a more personal one. This, this is something that really hit me last year as we were reading. In uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 23... Um, he, Paul is giving this long litany of our, uh, our failures and our, our sins as a human race. And uh, one of the things he mentions is that they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And I've been meditating on that recently, this whole concept of his glory and how his glory is my birthright. His glory is our birthright. And um, if there are, there are areas in my life where I exchange his glory for something cheap or something not glorious, um, something other than, other than his glory. And uh, I wanted to just talk about that for a minute because it's, it's something that I've been thinking about. Um, I, I'm reading right now just in my personal study times through Shaul's letters also. I'm in 1 Corinthians uh, right now, and this last week I read in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, and uh, one of the things he said is that you are the image and the glory of God. He said, in, in Hebrew it's like, you're the tselem and you're the kavod of Elohim. He said, stop and think about that for a second. Like, I'm not just the image of God on this earth, I'm the glory of God on this earth. It sounds presumptuous to say that, doesn't it? 
Like, it sounds like something a megalomaniac would say, like Antiochus Epiphanes, you know? Antiochus, who renamed, like, named himself the revelation of God. But just stop and think about that for a second. Uh, we were talking last Shabbat, too, about what, what, what is it when, when, when the Almighty is glorified in a situation? Well, uh, you know, the, the, the whole concept of glory, of course, is weight. So when he's glorified in a situation, the connotation is like, the weight of who he is is brought to bear in that situation. You feel the weight of his attributes, of, of who he is, maybe as a healer, maybe as a redeemer, um, maybe as a judge even, or a defender sometimes. So just stop and think about that. You are his glory on this earth. You are his glory in the lives of other people. You are his glory in crises. So how does he bring his weight to bear often in this world? He brings his weight to bear through, through his people. Wow, like that is our birthright. And, uh, you know, we, we, we read um, in Romans 3 also that we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of that glory. I, I think we've all experienced that. I know I've had times when I, uh, I feel like my soul is sick and I know I am not communicating his glory. I am not reflecting who he is to the world around me. And um, just, just try and stay out of my life when I'm in that state, you know. <laughs> And um, maybe that's the whole gospel, just that we as humanity were created to reflect who he is, and we totally blew it, and we just plunged into this almost animal-like, like self-centered state, and Yeshua has come to show us the path back to restoration. And, uh, I don't know, to kind of like to, to, to uh, unravel that thread a little bit more, I wonder if there aren't certain ways that like, the masculine soul and the feminine soul reflect his glory too. That seems to be another thread. I mean, um, what, what, what did it say? Like, uh, like Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, he talked about how women, like their, their hair even, is, is their glory. You know? um, it, it seems to be this theme that often like, the glory of a woman is more in her beauty. And of course we know that that's talking about inner beauty primarily, right? And then the glory of a man sometimes is more in his strength. That seems to be a, a stereotype, but I, I, I see that throughout the scriptures also. So I just wonder, you know, for each of us, if we're not created to reflect his glory in very specific ways. And then I wonder, I wonder if sometimes, you know, do we, do we trade that in? Do we exchange it for something cheaper? Um, something shallow? Maybe some, I don't know, something other than. I, I think I do sometimes. Idolatry, yeah. yeah one way or the other. Yeah, totally. And I just, uh, that's just, I just feel like that's something that Abba's been saying to me. Like, he has, he has a glory for me to live in. And uh, it's so easy not to live out of his glory. Yeah. It's so easy to just be little old me in the natural and not to live out of the glorious person that he's calling me to be. You know, I mean, sometimes when you really live out of his glorious image in you, it, it can be offensive to the people around you. you. You will be misunderstood. It can almost be scandalous sometimes when a person is truly living out of the glory of God in them. You know? But uh, that's what we're called to. And if it makes people uncomfortable, you know, maybe that's okay sometimes. So... That, that really, that's something on a personal level that Abba's been kind of speaking to me about. On, on a broader level, uh, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, this is like one of the flagship verses for my Hebrew teaching 
project for, for years. Um, Romans 1.16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the Besorah, of the gospel, for it is the power of Elohim for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What does that mean? Like, isn't everybody the same? Why, why did Paul say that the gospel is for the Jew first? And also for the Greek. I mean, was, was Paul a racist? Did Paul still have some Jewish bigotry of some kind left in his heart? Like, why did he say that? I, I assume that that wasn't the case. I assume that, you know, as Mashiach's emissary, he was communicating truth there. And he was, he was communicating something important. But I just, I don't feel like that half of the verses got a lot of airtime. You know, we more focus on the first half. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's something not to be ashamed of, and that's true, but... What about the second half about how it's for the Jewish people first? Yeah, I, I identified three maybe main areas where, that, where that's played out. And that was the first one. Uh, Yeshua's mission was specifically to the Jewish people. Uh, for instance, when he sent out his disciples two by two, he said, don't go to the Gentiles, don't go to the Samaritans, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And uh, sometimes with the whole concept of the... Uh, you know, the two houses of Israel or whatever, in terms of the, you know, Judah and Joseph, Judah picturing the uh, Jewish people and Joseph picturing the, you know, the uh, believers from the nations, maybe, maybe some of them originally from the northern tribes, Ephraim, etc. You know, sometimes um, if people come from that mindset, they'll say, oh, look, Yeshua said um, he's, he's only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, i.e. the northern tribes. But if you read that verse in context, he's talking about lost Jews. The lost sheep of the house of Israel in that context were lost Jews, and uh, I, do, I do have an understanding of an appreciation for the whole concept of God bringing the, the, the scattered people in the two houses of Israel back together. So I'm not, I'm not denigrating that, but I'm saying in that specific instance, Yeshua was specifically sent to the Jewish people. So that was a priority there. Um, on a broader level, when he sent out his apostles like Shaul, uh, like you had mentioned, Mike, um, when they went to a city, where was the first place they would go? They would, yeah, they would make a beeline for the shul. <laughs> they would go to the synagogue. Why? Well, because that's, these were the people who already believed in the God of Israel. These were the people, uh, including uh, God-fearing Gentiles, who already felt that drawing. So it was a good place to start. So you can see on a, on a missional, strategic level that uh, that makes sense. But, but was that all? Did that verse only apply to 2,000 years ago, to Yeshua and the missional strategy of, uh, of his... Uh, original apostles, or is that maybe something deeper still that continues to apply today? Um, I, I, I know that the Father has such a heart to see the Jewish people come to understand His Son for who He is, you know, to cut through all of the lies and the historical misunderstandings, etc. Um, Yeshua is the King of the Jews. It's who He is. He is a Jew. He continues to be one. He, you know, Paul, he, he loved his Jewish brothers so much and he prayed for them. And, you know, maybe that's something that still continues to be a call today. Like, is it a call today to the body of Messiah to prioritize getting the gospel to the Jewish people first? I, I, think, I think that's the heartbeat of our community too. Um, you know, if, if, if we were to be like, let's say a teacher and we were to grade ourselves as the body of Messiah for the last, let's say, sixteen or 1,700 years. If we were to grade ourselves on how well we've done in prioritizing reaching the Jewish people with the message of Messiah, uh, we would probably have to give ourselves a pretty low grade. I'm not saying that to be critical. That's just historical fact. We, we have really failed to take this verse to heart, to take them th- this, uh, this, this call and really factor it in. And um, that, like, 
like you said, Greg, that, 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 <clears throat> that's changing. Um, the, the whole messianic movement that has really come up in the last four or five decades especially, is it's a powerful <clears throat> excuse me, force for reaching the Jewish people. I mean, even here in Prince Albert, hey, I, I've just, I'm so excited that we have friends from Israel at the mall that you know, we're, we're, we're seeing on a regular basis. We're sharing little, little glimpses of who Yeshua is. And th- this is probably the most accurate look at Yeshua of Nazareth they've ever had. Like they're seeing disciples of Yeshua who love the people of Israel, who support the nation of Israel, who are true to the Torah, who, who celebrate Shabbat more faithfully than they do even, some of them, you know what I'm saying? You know who bring them challah? Wow, I mean, I am so touched by that. I just feel like, wow, you know, the Father is raising up Messianic communities to fulfill this part of his heart. And uh, I'm excited about that. So let's just, let's just keep that in mind. Like, that's our heartbeat. That is an essential part of our mission, uh, representing Yeshua and communicating the gospel to the people of Israel. Here's a, here's, here's a cool Hebraic concept in the very first verse of this letter. I, I wanted to point it out. Where he says that um, he is like an emissary, an apostle, set apart for the, uh, the gospel of Elohim. That Hebrew word for set apart there is the same as Kiddush. You know, um, when we, when we uh, after, you know, after our, after our services, we, uh, we take the fruit of the vine and uh, we, we say the blessing and we partake of that together and celebrate life in Messiah. And what, what's that called? Yeah, Kiddush. And uh, I just wonder if there isn't something about Kiddush that is a picture of being set apart for the gospel. You know, based on this Hebraic concept, the Hebrew word that would have been in Shaul's mind. You know, this is something that he did regularly every week of his life, probably, Kiddush. And here he is talking about being Kiddush for the gospel. You know, um, what is it, what, like, what is, what is Kiddush picture that we do that is a picture of us being dedicated to communicating the good news of Messiah? Something I was thinking about. When I, when I think of Kiddush, you know, what, when you have the fruit of the vine, it's like, especially when there's that alcoholic content in there, it's something that you imbibe. It's something that becomes a part of you. You know, l'chaim, to life, it, it symbolizes something that's life-giving. And, and when we come to the Son of Elohim and we, we partake deeply of Him and He becomes a part of us and we become a part of Him, that's like, that's the real Kiddush. Where we're set apart for communicating who He is to the world around us, hey? So I don't know, I just, I've been thinking about this whole kiddish thing, and why do we do this, and what is this a picture of on a deeper level, you know? And um, this is the verse that for me is really resonating. When we do kiddish, it's a picture of imbibing the master and um, being set apart for uh, communicating the good news about him to the world, and uh, especially to the Jewish people. And interestingly enough, like even in the New American Standard here, they render that, in this case, they render that as set apart for the gospel, so... Because, like, sanctified for the gospel, just it doesn't connect with people, hey? Yeah, or, or uh, hallowed for the gospel. Um, here's, here's a verse that I think would be, that, like, not so much we as a community, maybe, but on a broader level as a messianic community, I, I think we would do well to take to heart. Romans chapter 1, verse 21, it talks about people who know Elohim, but don't glorify him as Elohim or give thanks. And how uh, the result of uh, failing to do that results in futility, futile speculations, having our foolish hearts darkened. And uh, I'm going to be really honest with you. I feel like this is a description of Midrash sometimes. 
in some congregations. Uh, you know, there are sometimes, I, I wouldn't say that that's the case here, because we have been very upfront about praying together, about incorporating prayer, but sometimes you get messianic communities where it's all study, 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 midrash, midrash, midrash. You have groups of people who never pray together, who never stop to just say thank you to the Almighty. And you end up talking about him like he's not in the room, talking about him instead of talking to him. And uh, I think sometimes if that's all we do as a people, if all we do is talk about him, like he's out there somewhere, like he's a theological construct, I, I think we may be in danger at that point of having our hearts darkened, of disconnecting, of um, ending up with a bunch of like pointless speculations. You know what I'm saying? And uh, I'm not saying that so much for us in this room, but you know, as a voice to the broader Messianic community, I would say, let's stay strong in prayer. Let's prioritize not just talking about him, but talking to him as communities. Because we don't want to just know about him. We want to know him. That's the point of Chaye Olam, eternal life. You know, uh, John 17. This is, this is eternal life, that they may know, know you, the one true Elohim, and, the, uh, and uh, your son whom you've sent. So, yeah, I just, I just say, let's continue to know him as a congregation. Let's continue to, to give him thanks and to, uh, to be uh, active in prayer as, as a group. I just, I just feel that's so important. Then we, uh, we kind of touched it already, but uh, Romans chapter 1, 18 to 32, that's pretty scary. He just gives like the most detailed description of human depravity, I think, that you can find anywhere in the scriptures. And then he brings it home on a really practical level, like he really nails it in the beginning of chapter 2 by saying, so uh, don't judge anybody because you do the same stuff, essentially. You know, it's, it's so easy to read these passages about human depravity and to think about the, uh, the dudes in the penitentiary, you know, or uh, drug dealers, or people who are really, quote, bad, according to our status quo in our society. But just to, just to stop, you know, as a spiritual exercise, stop and read that passage and say, check, 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 that's me, that's me, that's me. I have that propensity in myself. I have the propensity in me to be a serial killer. I have the propensity in me to blaspheme the name of God, to do all manner of abusive things. That is my heart. Without, like, the Father's regenerative action, without Yeshua's grace, like, without salvation, this is me. Every single one of these sins describe me. And you know, when, when we read the word like that, you all of a sudden, you can't judge people anymore. You can't even hold grudges or hold stuff against people. Because, I mean, hey, I do the same stuff. I'm prone to it also. I don't know, I kind of wonder if that isn't the whole practical point of um, what Paul has to say about that in the beginning of Romans 2. And I mean, you know, the greater truth also is even though that is a description of us before encountering the Almighty and being regenerated, that's not who we truly are now. I mean, who we are truly now is righteous people, holy people. Um, yeah, that's our true identity now, hey? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, saying, oh yeah, I'm just a sinner is never an excuse for sin because that's not who we truly are anymore. Yeah. Um, man, so I, I noticed that something that kept popping out in Paul's discussion here was the theme of truth. You notice that? Let's just look at a couple instances where he talks about truth. In um, chapter 2, verse 8, he talks about truth as not something to be given mental assent to, not something to be talked or read about, but something to be obeyed. Wow, that is a very Jewish approach to truth. 
Truth is something to be practiced in our lives. Truth is something that demands obedience. And I just, I wonder even about, you know, some of our traditional practices in the body of Christ, if, if we're not, I just wonder if we're really communicating truth. Like when we celebrate the end of December as Jesus' birthday, when we know it's not. Like is that, I don't know, like is that practicing truth? You know, when we, uh, when we, when we do certain things that are not commanded in the Bible. I wonder if that's practicing truth. I don't think it's communicating truth. Um, in one eighteen, he also talks about how when we do stuff that's wrong, you know, unrighteousness, he says when we do that, we're suppressing the truth. That's a, that's a scary concept. Hey? You can just think about, let's say, a, a court situation where someone is innocent, where someone has been uh, charged falsely or slandered, and if the truth is suppressed, that can result in disaster. That can end in great tragedy. And yet, you know, in every area of our lives where we're not practicing the truth of the Torah, as it's written in Psalm 119, you know, thy law is truth. When we're not practicing the Torah, we are unwittingly being accomplices to suppressing the truth in the world. And conversely, when we're practicing God's Torah, when we're doing His commandments, the light is shining and the truth is being revealed and shown to the world. I just, I wonder if that's why there hasn't been such a concerted attack against the people of God practicing the commands of God throughout history. Because I mean, you know, if we just, if we take our theological scissors and cut out the Torah and quit doing that stuff, we begin to suppress the truth. Well, of course, because there's the law of love too, eh? Like my grandparents, uh, they have no family in the province except for us. So, you know, on that day, we'll go and we'll have supper, we'll go have a meal with them and spend family time. And they know, you know, we're just doing this for family because we love each other. We're not doing it for any other reason, eh? Um, Yeah. Or even, you know, there's no law against gathering in Yeshua's name on any day of the week to worship, eh? Like Tuesday or Friday or Sunday, that's, there's no problem with that, of course. Word gets around pretty fast, too. Yeah, it, it's, like, it's kind of hard to hide the fact that you celebrate Shabbat. <laughs> it's like a um, really big candle power. <laughs> Just can't hide that light. <laughs> Almost like a sign. <laughs> Absolutely. <clears throat> yeah. And then there's one more verse here about truth that really jumped out at me. Uh, Romans 1.25. Um, just like he talked about how we exchange the glory of Elohim for cheap stuff. Um, corruptible garbage. Um, a couple of verses later he talks about how as humans we have this weird propensity to exchange his truth for lies. I mean like on a business level rip off, hey? That is just not good business sense to trade truth for lies. I don't know. For some reason, we have this propensity to do it, and we need Yeshua to save us as a human race. I don't understand that, but it's how it seems to happen. Um, I'm kind of sharing more personally from a lot of this, but here, here's another verse that really spoke to me personally this week. In uh, Romans 2.16, Paul just didn't refer to the message of Messiah as the message of the gospel. He specifically referred to it as his message, his gospel. And I thought, Wow. Like, this guy really owned the thing, hey? I don't know if I can do that yet. Like, seriously, I I totally believe in Yeshua, and I'm experiencing the benefits of the new covenant in my life, but I don't feel like I fully understand the gospel yet. Like, I feel like there's a power there that I have yet to have tapped into. I, I feel like I don't 
the, the, the ramifications of the gospel on a daily basis. They're just, they're not always there in my mind, you know? And uh, I, like, I'm on a quest this year to really, to really plumb to a deeper depth the depths of the gospel and what it means. So this is the verse that really hit me. Like, I want to so understand the gospel and so live in it and breathe it. The message of Messiah, that I can say, that's my gospel. Like, the message of Messiah, that's my message. Not just a message that I give assent to or that I read about. This is a message that I've become. You know? Like, that's an aspiration of mine. Um, I don't know, maybe we could go on a quest this year as a community even, just to understand the message of Messiah, to understand the good news better, eh? Yeah. I don't know, what's, what's your favorite term? Do you like the term gospel, good news, message, uh, bisorah? Does it matter to you which term I use? Like all kind of connect? Yeah. I just, I'm, yeah. I'm still trying to get a feel for what the, the core concept is, even behind the term gospel or good news or bisura. Um, one other theme in here. We, we sang Glorious Day today, you know, about the justification we have in Messiah. We sang that today for a reason. I wanted to sing that because that's like a massive theme in Paul's letters, hey? I mean, you're talking about a very observant Jew who at one time had all of his righteousness, his righteousness with the Holy One. It consisted of his observance of the Torah. And uh, he was obsessive about it. And, uh, like, unhealthily so. And there reached this point in his life where he realized that in his quest for righteousness through observing the mitzvot, he was committing murder. Like he was murdering believers in Yeshua, the giver of the Torah. He was persecuting the very one who gave the Torah. Like, so backwards, hey? So I just, to try and get in, in Shaul's psyche, with this whole justification theme, you begin realizing, like, it's no wonder this was something that he kept coming back to. This was the foundation of his faith and his worldview and his understanding of Messiah's atonement, eh? And uh, I want to understand that more this year, too. Like, uh, I, I've told you a little about my grandpa, um, who was a Baptist pastor, and he was a very zealous man for the kingdom. He worked hard preaching the gospel and reaching out to the world around him and, and uh, doing his pastoral work. And, um, you know, there, there, was a, there was a time in his life when he was a very strict Baptist. Like, uh, the, his righteousness was almost kind of a colder righteousness or a strict righteousness where if you do something wrong, bam, you get hit for it, you know. And, and um, I, I think that was, that was hard sometimes, you know, from, from conversations I've had with uh, my family members. But there was a point in my grandpa's life where he had a revelation of justification. He just, he realized what it meant. Like, I am justified, I am right with, with Elohim through faith in Messiah. And it just, my family said that it, he changed. Like, he, he, he became warmer. He became more loving. He lost the, I mean, there's a good strictness, you know, but he, like, he lost the bad side of that strictness. And I just think, wow, that's my birthright in my family. A revelation of, like, justification through faith. And I want to understand this thing, you know. So, that's something I might keep coming back to this year, too. Maybe we can, like, get a fuller revelation from Yeshua about that. But I, I kind of wonder if that isn't a message we really need to hear sometimes in the Messianic movement. You know, because we, we're, we're returning to these certain elements of the faith that have been lost. And they are more external elements. You know, uh, the, way, the, way you, uh, the way you eat. 
um, certain things that you might wear on your clothes. Uh, these things are external elements. And uh, they, they, they can definitely be identity markers. I think that's the whole point behind a sign, in part. And uh, it's really easy to start drawing comparisons, right? I do these things. These people don't do these things. Therefore, if this is right and they're not doing them, they must be wrong. And before you know it, you begin to think in terms of condemnation, judging other people. And uh, I mean, it's so easy. It's so easy to fall into that as we return to the Torah. You know? And I just think when we understand the concept of justification, that is the remedy to that, that ailment. Because when we understand, you know, that person at that church down the street who believes with all his heart what God has shown him so far of, of, uh, of Yeshua's atonement that he has, forgiveness of sins through Yeshua's said blood, he is justified with God. He will never be more righteous than he is today. And all of a sudden, you just, you can't judge that person. You cannot think condemningly of that person because Yeshua has justified that person. Because Yeshua has made that person right with God. Because Yeshua intercedes for that person before the throne. And I, you know, well, whatever Paul said about that in Romans 8, we'll get there. But uh, that's just, that rocks my world. The whole concept of justification is rocking my world. And, uh, I, I pray that continues. I, I, pray that's, I pray that's something that really rocks the Messianic movement on a broader level. That's our testimony. Justification through faith. Um, here's two cool Hebrew words from this, uh, from this letter. Uh, Ruach HaKodesh. What does that mean literally in, in, uh, in English? Hmm? Yeah, we'll, we'll often say the Holy or set-apart spirit. But what it literally means actually, like Ruach, spirit... Kodesh is actually holiness. Kadosh is holy. Kodesh is holiness. So when we say Ruach HaKodesh, we're literally saying the spirit of, of holiness or of uh, set-apartness. Yeah. And it's interesting that this construct of the word comes through even in our English translations. You can tell you're dealing with like a Jewish individual with a, with a, who thinks in Hebrew and has rabbinical training in uh, Romans chapter 1 verse. Like verse... Um, Four, he talks about how Yeshua was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. So you hear it right there, hey? The spirit of holiness, the Ruach HaKodesh. That's the original uh, Hebraic, Hebraic construct for that. Um, another Hebrew word that really jumps out when we begin to discover the Hebraic fabric of the apostolic scriptures is uh, the last verse, Romans 3, verse 30. Sorry, this is like second last verse in their readings. It says, Indeed, Elohim who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is Echad. He is one. Isn't that cool? I mean, you're talking about a Jewish individual who said the Shema every day of his life, most likely. You know, who, uh, who sang the Shema with his congregation on Shabbat. You know, God is one. He is one. He is one. And, Maybe that just began to really filter into his psyche in terms of how he saw the Almighty. You know, okay, so he is one, and he is the justifier of his people. Therefore, the one who justifies those who, uh, who are circumcised and uncircumcised, he is one. You know, maybe that unity filters down to us as a people too. Yeah. Okay. Um, here, here's the biggest thing in this letter that really gets me going. I think this is the, this is the thing that we have most missed 
uh, throughout church history. Um, like the pop idea, you know, if you were to ask someone, um, just in whatever denomination, about circumcision, they would say something like, well, you know, it's spiritual now. And uh, physical circumcision is irrelevant. Uh, maybe that's been done away with as pertaining to the Old Covenant. Uh, if you were to talk about keeping the law, you, would pro- you might have a response about, you know, keeping the law is legalism and uh, it's about grace now. Th- these are often the trains of thought. And, um, you know, I, uh, I affirm the, the spirituality of circumcision. I, I affirm um, the place that, that grace plays, of course, in the life of the believer. But I just don't know how we can draw those conclusions when we read Paul. <clears throat> like when we just read Paul, plain reading. I'm not even talking about reading the Torah or reading some of the other epistles that are a little more pro-commandments or whatever. I'm talking Paul here. Like let's have a look at this thing together. Uh, Romans chapter 2 and 3. Paul's talking here about circumcision. He's talking about keeping the law. He's talking about Jewishness. Let's just see how he talks about it. Um, before we look at this whole circumcision thing, I want to I want to define something in the Second Temple world and in, in the Apostolic Scriptures. When they talk about circumcision, they're not just talking about that literal act. They're not just talking about that specific commandment. That was like the term that meant Jewishness. Um, I'll give you an example. In Philippians 4.11, Paul mentioned a guy named Justice, whose Hebrew name was Yeshua, Jesus called Justice. And uh, he says that he was one of the circumcision. What does that mean? Well, that was the way you say he's Jewish. He has a Jewish background. He's from the circumcision, right? So uh, you have to keep that in mind as as, as we read this. Circumcision equals Jewishness. It also meant conversion to Judaism. If you, quote, got circumcised, that was the way of saying that you converted to Judaism, essentially. So, um, hmm. Let's, I, I, need two, I need two guys up here for this now. Hmm, Mike, could I have you volunteer? I think I need you and I need... Greg, could I, could I grab you two guys? Okay. So, um... You're going to be like our two, uh, wow, models of this. Oh, good thing it was this mic and not that mic. Okay, so um, here are my props today. So um, here I am. You can just come and stand right here. Right here, this is good. Okay, so here's your, uh, here's your keeper. You said a keeper? Sure. For, for this, it's a keeper. And um, you're going to be named uh, Hanania, okay? Everybody say Hanania. Ani Hanania. Yeah, who <laughs> Hanania. And um, check out my, my cool cap, Greg. I liked your brand cap so much, I, brand to, I went to Brand Tractors in Saskatoon this last week, and I was like, I want to advertise for you guys. Do you have any caps? So he gave me this. So anyway, I'll let you wear it. And um, you're going to be Jason, okay? Hanania and Jason. Now, Hanania is uh, very Jewish. In fact, his father was a rabbi, and his grandfather was a rabbi, and he had his brimilah on the, uh, the eighth day, and he grew up um, as a very good Jew. He did all the Jewish stuff. And uh, Jason here um, comes from a hardcore pagan background. Like, his parents, they worshipped every single god they could get their hands on. You know, um, their idea was like, the more te- pagan temples we can go to, the, the better. And, um, 
and they did a lot of really, really bad stuff. And that's how Jason grew up. Okay? Um, what city shall we say? Yeah, let's say Rome. Rome, yeah. We'll say you guys grew up in Rome, okay? And um, Paul's talking about these two dudes in, in this letter. So he's saying, you know, Hanania here, he's a, he's a good Jew. He's really proud of the Torah. You know, he'll be at the meat market and uh, there will be like the beef over here and the uh, pork sausage over here and the guy will be like, well, what do you want? And he'll be like, can't you see my kippah? I'm a Jew. God said not to eat that garbage. And uh, we, have, uh, we have the truth, buddy. You need, to, you need to listen to me sometimes. Let's get together. You know, he's really, uh, he's proud of that. You know, everywhere he goes, he's um, preaching the gospel of the Torah. The only problem is, though, uh, Hananiah, you know, he, he, he kind of has this idea that because he's Jewish, because his, his parents were Jewish, because he's 100%, you know, his grandfather's a rabbi, he can... You know, he's not a sinner. He's, he's justified because he's Jewish. He's right with God. So, you know, he can, he can um, have his days off from being righteous. So, you know, maybe he'll, uh, maybe he'll notice that they don't lock up the uh, idol's temple down the road at night. And I mean, you know, there are a couple of nice golden statues there. So uh, one, one night he decides to go over there and just take one. I mean, hey, they're goys, you know, and it's an idol's temple. Why can't I, why can't I steal the thing? You know, and maybe they discover him and gets nailed a couple of days later. And I mean, it's, it looks pretty bad. You know, like a Jew robbing this idol's temple. And I mean, you know, like this thing's pretty dear to these Gentiles. And I mean, theft is wrong no matter how you look at it. You know, maybe he has a couple um, illicit relationships on the side. He kind of keeps juggling or whatever. Um, you know, um, this, this, is, this is the life of Jew- some Jewish people in the Second Temple era. You realize. It's like, yeah, I'm Jewish. So, you know, I'm good with God. I'm justified. And... Uh, I don't have a sin problem. And uh, I can be a little, I can play a little fast and loose in some areas and it's okay. And then, uh, and then we have Jason. And uh, let's say that Jason, like, um, one day just realized that this is crazy. I mean, you can't, there, there are way too many gods. And, and, and all of these, like, religions, they conflict. And uh, there has to be a God who's like the greatest of them all. Someone had to have made the universe. And uh, maybe he just begins to think. Maybe he begins to, uh, maybe he hears about the God of Israel. You know, the people of Israel, they're, they're really weird. They only have one God. I mean, what a bunch of losers, you know? The more gods, the better, right? That's what Jason always heard from his parents growing up. And, you know, he really begins to think about this. Maybe he just feels this drawing in his heart. And one day he, uh, he does something crazy. He gets up on Saturday morning and he goes to the synagogue and he kind of sneaks in and sits in the back row, you know, and they're, they're like reading the, they're reading the Law and the Prophets and he, he begins to learn about the God of Israel. And, and let's say that this goes on for several years and he begins to realize that the God of Israel is where it's at. He's the one true God and he kind of begins to quit going with his parents to some of these events, you know, and um, his life begins to change. And then let's say that one day, like, Someone comes to town. Some new guy from Israel is in the synagogue, and you know they uh, they give him a chance to uh, share Devar Torah, a word of Torah, and, uh, and this guy starts talking about how the Mashiach has come, the King of Israel, and how he uh, you know he died for the sins of Israel and Isaiah fifty three and all this. And let's say that Jason in the back row is like, "Wow, I wish I could believe in him, but I'm not Jewish." You know, he's the Messiah of Israel, and I'm not part of Israel. I just come here, and I I fear God, I worship God, but I. I'm not circumcised, you know. I do. And um, maybe he comes to faith. Maybe he hears later that, you know, uh, Yeshua, the God who justifies the circumcised through faith, is the same God who justifies the uncircumcised through faith. Just like he justified Abraham through faith. 
You know, this is probably the kinds of scenarios that were playing out in the Second Temple era. This is a, this was what Paul was was hitting on. Hey, and so let's say that Jason here he begins to. Uh, get together with the Messianic community, this newly forming Messianic community. You know, they, they gather at someone's house on Saturday nights and they, uh, they just learn from this apostle uh, the, the teachings of, of Rabbi Yeshua. And uh, maybe he begins to understand that he really is part of Israel. Maybe he's not even circumcised, but, you know, this apostle is saying, you are part of the commonwealth of Israel. You know, even actually, uh, maybe the apostle even referenced this parsha where uh, Jacob said, or no, sorry, where Elohim said to Jacob, you're going to become a congregation of nations. A kahal goyim. Maybe the apostle said, see Jason? It doesn't say a congregation of Jewish people or of the people of Israel. It's a congregation of nations and you're from the nations. So you're in this congregation, the descendants of Jacob. And maybe, ja- maybe Jason begins to realize that the Torah is for him. All of the Torah is for him. That, you know, celebrating the festivals. They point to his Messiah. So they're part of his heritage too. Even if he hasn't converted to Judaism and gone up to Jerusalem and made the sacrifice. And uh, so what do we have here? Let's say that we have, we have a guy who's circumcised, but he's not keeping the Torah. He has some hypocrisy in his life. And this isn't true of you, of course, right? This, this is Hanania right now we're talking about. And then we have here someone who's not circumcised, but who is keeping the law. And this is the concept behind Paul and uh, what he's saying. So let's just read this now. And uh, we'll, just, we'll just hear, if, if we can hear Paul talking to people, maybe even in the early Messianic community. He says, so uh, if, you, uh, if you bear the name Jew, Hanania, if you rely upon the Torah and you boast in God, and of course you know His will and you approve the things that are essential, being instructed, instructed out of the Torah, you know, and you're confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the Torah the embodiment of knowledge and the truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shouldn't steal, do you steal? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I don't know, that temple incident. Only golden idols. You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the Torah, through your breaking the Torah, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it's written. And then this is where he really begins hitting it. He says, For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So, if the uncircumcised man, i.e. Jason, if he keeps the requirements of the Torah, won't his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Let me read that again. With the understanding that circumcision equals Jewishness. Okay? Contextually here in the, the, uh, the broader body of the apostolic scriptures. So he's saying, if uh, the, quote, non-Jewish man keeps the Torah, won't his non-Jewishness be regarded as Jewishness? That, that is a contextual understanding of this passage. And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the Torah, won't he judge you, who though having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? So you hear him talking here, hey? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. See? And here he's not even talking about circumcision. He's flat out talking about Jewishness. So we know this is what Paul's talking about here. He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise, which is the same 
root. Praise is the same root as Judah, right? He's doing some Hebrew wordplay here. His praise isn't from men, but from Elohim. So hopefully that kind of helped us understand what Paul was talking about. Maybe that gives us a better understanding of this passage for today too. Thanks, guys. Sorry, I, I didn't. I didn't give you a very like active role in that drama, did I? But uh, I only had a look the part. Yeah. <laughs> right on. <clears throat> but get that. You know, Paul here is talking about people from believers from the nations who aren't physically circumcised, who aren't quote Jews. They're not halachically Jewish. And he says, you know what? If that guy is Torah observant, that's real Jewishness right there. Well, I, I'm not denigrating physical Jewishness, right? I mean, I, I respect that. I'm, I'm just saying, like, did you notice Paul was talking? He talked really favorably about circumcision, about Jewishness, about keeping the law. He said, you know what? Circumcision does have value if you keep the law. Yeah. He said, you know what? If someone is like not halachically Jewish, if they're, quote, Gentile, they're not circumcised, but they keep the law, that's where it's at. That person is going to judge the physical Jew who is a hypocrite and who is not observant. And uh, you know what? I really see that. Uh, oh, thank you, Wayne. I think it's coming down here. There we are. Yeah, I had to turn it on, too. Yeah, okay. Thanks. Anyway, that's like, that encourages me. And I think, you know what, that's true of the Messianic community today too. There are people in the Messianic community who are, quote, non-Jewish, but they love God's Torah and they practice it sincerely. And you know what, there are people who are, have an ethnically Jewish background, you know, they, you know they're just like 100% when it comes to the Yiddishkeit, they're just, you know, they know all the words, but they, they're, they're sloppy with their observance. You know, somehow they think that faith in Yeshua equals license to do whatever you want and break God's commandments. And what Paul is saying is, you know what? This guy who takes the Torah seriously is going to judge you who doesn't because he's going to be the new standard. He's going to be the new standard because real Jewishness is constituted by the Torah. It's defined by the Torah. It's not, uh, you know, how much bagels and locks you eat every week. It's not about how many Yiddish words you can you, that roll off the tip of your tongue. You know, Paul, Paul is saying very clearly here that real Jewishness is, a, is, a, is an internal thing. It's a state of mind. It's a, it's a hard thing. And it's defined by the Torah. Yeah. So you know what's cool about that? Doesn't that open the door to everybody? Like that just puts everybody on equal footing. And I, I appreciate that. I, I feel like that's something that the broader Messianic Jewish movement really needs to take to heart. Yeah. So, maybe we can look at the, uh, look at the, oh, okay, I do want to maybe hit one more thing about that, because we're just looking right now at Paul, his perspective on Jewishness, his perspective on physical circumcision, his perspective on, on keeping the law, and uh, he does have a couple other things to say here about it that, that I just want to underscore. In uh, Romans 3.19, he says that we know that whatever the Torah says, it speaks to those who are under the Torah, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. So, who, according to this verse, is, quote, under the Torah? Is it only Jewish people or those who choose to live by the dictates of, the, of God's law? It says, 
so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to Elohim. So uh, what we see from this verse is Torah, the law of God, God's Torah is universal. It applies to everyone. Because if it didn't, then, quote, every mouth wouldn't be closed and everyone wouldn't be accountable. Only the people who were under that would be, namely, like, let's say, physical Israel or something. So we just see here that there's this universal element to the Torah that doesn't just apply to the Jewish people. Um, also, in the, uh, the very next verse, he says, Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So he, he, he's, uh, he's describing one of the functions of Torah there, right? He's saying, you know, like, when you begin to, when you encounter the law of God, that's when you realize, oh, this is wrong. Because the law of God is an objective standard that states what's right and wrong. And all of a sudden, your life falls into one of these two categories. You know, these activities, okay, God says these are condoned. And then he says, oh, these ones are wrong. And uh, let me ask you, though, is that the only function of Torah? Is, is the only function of the Torah to point out sin? To bring the knowledge of sin. I, I think, that's, I think this, is a, this is a misunderstanding that is very widespread. You know, we, we see this verse and we say, okay, through the law comes the knowledge of sin, therefore that's the whole point of the Torah. That's its only function. It's to convict us of sin when we're in a pre-saved state. And then, uh, you know, once we're saved, uh, it really serves no useful purpose anymore. Yeah, but, you know, the, 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 the function of the Torah is so much broader. You know, it talks about... Uh, well, okay, that approach could be compared to someone saying, you know, um, before I was saved, I uh, observed the laws of Canada. Uh, now that I'm saved, though, you know, I don't have to follow those laws. So, you know, I can run red lights. It's not a problem. You know, that was just to show me how I have problems, convict me of sin, show me that I need to save. I mean, like, that's, of course, that's entirely irrational, right? But, it's, but, but think about this for a second. The Torah is, it's not just like, Personal commandments, this is national legislation here. These are the customs of Israel we're talking about. And it just, it doesn't make sense to say that the only purpose of the law is to convict us of sin. You know, it's definitely, like you said, Sharon, it's an instruction manual for life. On a personal level, family level, you know, congregational level. And then his last verse in here, he just hits it. He says, so uh, with this whole faith thing, with being justified by faith, um, does that result in us nullifying the Torah? And then he like spits it out. This is a very like um, vehement expression. May it never be. You can imagine him almost like just jumping as he says it. Like, you know, of course not. On the contrary, we establish the Torah. So you know, our faith in Messiah that brings us to justification with God, it doesn't result in us nullifying the law and not applying it to our lives. Like, may it never be. On the contrary, faith in Messiah, real faith, brings us to value the law of God, to practice the law of God, to treat it as the instruction manual. Yeah. So, I mean, this is Paul we're talking about here. This is Paul's... Nomology, like you know, the Hebrew term for the Torah is the nomos, right? So nomology would be his, uh, like his theology when it comes to the law, and this is it. And I just, I don't understand how this gets missed, but it really does. Like Paul is speaking so favorably of the Torah here; he is so pro-Torah, and uh, I, I'm, I'm happy that people are beginning to realize that. Um, I'm happy that I hit a point in my life where I realized that. Maybe we can just look at the. Uh, portion for about 10 minutes here to finish.
I had a little... This is the story where um, our friend Jacob gets his new name. So I wanted to tell you a little story about, about, uh, about that. So uh, Yaakov. Yaakov was the oldest of seven children. So he had to quit school and work to help support his younger brothers and sisters. He never learned to read. So when Yaakov got married and started a checking account at the local bank, he signed his checks XX. Yaakov started his own business, which soon prospered. Soon he was a very rich man. One day, Yaakov got a call from his bank. Yaakov, I uh, wanted to ask you about this check. We weren't sure you had really signed it. All these years, you've been signing your checks XX. This one is signed with three X's. Yaakov answered, Oh, since I've become so wealthy, my wife thought I ought to have a middle name. So, Yaakov got his new name too, hey? Hmm. There are, a couple, there are a couple things I want to hit here. There are some fascinating links between this, this, uh, this passage of Israel, like Jacob wrestling through the dark night, receiving a new name, walking off from that scenario with a limp. Um, it's, like, it's almost a mystical story. Like, I just, I don't know, this doesn't really fit my theological box. How does a person wrestle with the Almighty? Why does the Almighty say things like, okay, why does it say he's a man? Why does he say things like, let me go, the day is starting to dawn? You know, how can you get away with saying, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me? I mean, really, like, I don't know, like, does, does something about this story just not fit your box? It's kind of like that story about Abraham where the Almighty comes as three people and then two of him go down to Sodom and one of them stays behind and we, we talked about how, that whole scenario. I don't know, there, I get a lot of things out of this. One of them is simply that we have an Elohim who isn't just a theological construct, who wants to engage with us in a very, on a very real level, on a very active level sometimes. Um, wow, I don't know. I'm kind of surprised like Jacob survived that event. I mean, that's pretty audacious. Seriously. You know, this story, like, it almost has mythic proportions. And I don't think, say mythic in the sense of like something that's false or airy-fairy. I mean, like, sometimes a nation will have things that are mythic and it means like they're bigger, they're larger than life. Like, they're so massive that you can't even comprehend the full magnitude of them. And I feel that this is such a story. Yeah, of course, it absolutely happened. It's historically, um, um, like, veritable. But it's just, it's so big. You can't... Yeah. And, and I mean, this is, this is the story from which the name for our nation was given. I mean, when you look at the map today, it doesn't say Jacob over there in that little strip of land in the Middle East. And it certainly doesn't say Esau or Ishmael or something. If this event hadn't happened, then every, nobody would be talking about um, Israel and human, the human rights uh, atrocities of Israel. They'd be talking about the human rights atrocities of Jacob or, or something. You know what I'm saying here? Like, this is very real time today. And uh, what does that teach us, though, about the nature of our relationship with the Holy One? I mean, we, you are called Israel. What, what does Israel mean? It, it, it implies striving and wrestling through a dark night. Uh, in, in juxtaposition to this is Islam. Does anybody know what the term Islam actually means? It means to submit. Submit. Islam is the way of submission, the way of Islam. Can you hear the difference here? Islam, just grab your face, shove it in the dirt, submit. What is Israel? Come and wrestle. 
Come and, come and strive through the dark night. Come and like interact on such an authentic and, 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 and desperate and even audacious way with the Almighty if you have a sincere heart, if you really want Him and want His blessing, if you're, if you're struggling for true life. You know, that's the kind of the concept here. And I just, I just think, wow, you know, if we, if we take that approach and how we do our faith, how we express our faith, how we, even how we interact as a community, what's that going to look like? You know, what, what, what it'll mean is we don't value just making people fit in a box. We don't value forcing someone to submit to a set of, of guidelines necessary. Yes, I mean, there are, there are guidelines in Scripture and we support that. But we value wrestling. What does that look like? You know, uh, often in our culture, we're embarrassed of wrestling. We don't want to see, you know what, I've really been struggling in this area of my life. I'm having a faith crisis. I'm wrestling with questions. But this is, this is who you are. This is the name Israel. And, and if it's true that Jacob received the blessing, Jacob received his true identity, Jacob received his new name that communicated who he most truly was from that event, then, you know what, maybe that's where we'll encounter the Holy One too. During those times when we're struggling, where we're wrestling, but where we're, when we're holding on and we're not letting go, and we're, we continue to pray, and we say, I'm not going to let you go unless I have your blessing. Maybe that's something we can take away from this parsha on, on a practical level. So, you know, those dark nights, those times of wrestling, it's, it's part of the journey. So, we, we shouldn't be discouraged by them. They shouldn't cause us to lose all heart. It's not a time to go belly up and just give up. It's a time to engage, to wrestle, and to receive your new name, to receive who you truly are in Yahweh and uh, your, your relationship with Him. There is one, there's one incident later on in the story where a son is born, and he's given a name by his mother, and then he is given a new name by his father. Um, Rachel, when she had her, her second son, uh, you know, um, the, the, whole, the whole travail process and uh, childbirth proved to be fatal for her, and as she was expiring, she named him Ben-Oni, like son of my sorrows. And uh, the father stepped in and said, no, he's going to be called Benjamin, he's going to be called son of my right hand. And uh, you know what, that, that, is a, that is a conflict that continues to be very real in the life of every single one of us. We have voices in our lives, whether they come from, maybe from family members, maybe from the media, maybe from some experience we had in our lives where it's trying to name you something. Maybe, it'll, maybe it's trying to name you like a loser or ugly or you name it. You know what the names are that, have been, that, that the forces of evil in this world have tried to put on you. And you know what? Sometimes we've bought into them. Sometimes we've said, yeah, that's my name. That's who I am. You know, and then we hang our head in shame. But, but the Father wants to come into each one of our lives and say, that is not who you are. This is who you truly are. This is the name that I am giving you. So, you know, I, I encourage you, in, sometime this week, if you can, take some time to say, Father, what are some of the false names that I've accepted? And what, what are you calling me? What's my true name from you? And uh, you know what? Maybe we can do that in each other's lives too. Maybe that's the heart of encouragement. You know, when I see someone, I say, you know what? You are a righteous man. You are a, you are a man of God. That is a name. That is speaking truth into someone's life. Hey, I just, I just wonder what that would look like if we really tapped into that. I'd like to tap into that more. I mean, I don't know. Maybe that would be stepping on people's toes sometimes. Maybe that's kind of invading personal space. But, uh, I don't know, I, I kind of would like my personal space to be invaded in that way more often, personally. So, you know, that's, um, that's something really practical we can take away from um, this week's Parsha.
Okay, I would like to talk for about two minutes here on some end of days connections with this whole wrestling story. Just, just to keep in mind, because of the time that we're in in history, um, Jacob knew when it was time to go home, to go back to Israel, um, in two ways. Firstly, it says that uh, the faces of Laban's relatives were no longer towards him. In other words, he was experiencing uh, anti-Semitism. They were lying about him. They're saying, "Yeah, he got rich off our dad. You know, he's just ripping us off." Um, that was the first scenario, anti-Semitism. The second was Elohim spoke to him very clearly in a dream, and he said, "It's time for you to go home." So, you know, there are a lot of believers today who are waking up to their inheritance in Israel, and they're saying, do we get to go back to Israel? When do we get to go back? And to that, we can just say, you know what? Watch the anti-Semitism level. And secondly, just wait for his prophetic word. And uh, his people are going to know. Finally, here, when Jacob is coming home, there is a very strong connection between Jacob coming home and tribulation. Um, It could be that that the great tribulation that Yeshua prophesied will be connected to a return to Israel, whether that be like the, the, the covenant and the scriptures of it and the customs of Israel, or a literal return to the land. Um, Jacob talks about being um, like experiencing tribulation in uh, Genesis um, 31, 13, no, sorry, uh, 32, verse 8, and uh, 35, verse 3. And then finally, there are three strong connections between this story and Yom Kippur. So, you know, however it is that Yom Kippur is going to be prophetically fulfilled in the future, if any major events happen to Israel on Yom Kippur in the future, um, it'll probably be connected with Jacob's dark night of wrestling, Jacob's personal great tribulation. In a 32.31, where he talks about, like, appeasing Esau, he uses the term for Kippur. He says, like, maybe I can maybe I can, like, atone his face, is what it literally means. Um, 32.31, it talks about his dark night of wrestling was a time of panim, el panim, face to face with God. This is an idiom that's applied to uh, Yom Kippur, when the Kohen Hagadol, the high priest, is face to face with the Almighty. And then finally, after we finish Yom Kippur, what's the next festival that we go to? Sukkot. And what do we read in Genesis 33.17? After Jacob went through that dark night of wrestling, he emerged from it limping. Sometimes I kind of feel like I'm limping after the Yom Kippur fast. Where was the first place he stopped? Sukkot. Yeah. So, you know, let's just keep that in mind as we uh, move into the future as a community of disciples. Shalom. I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.